0: It's wonderful to be able to share with you today as we journey into our September sermon series, which is called First, as we look at how we can put our treasure where our heart is, because Jesus tells us that where you put your treasure, where you put your time, where you put your resources, that's where your heart will eventually gravitate to. And we want to make sure that what we say our lives are all about is what our lives are really all about. I don't know about you. When I was a kid, I was taught my priorities, and I bet some of you were taught these same priorities I was taught my priorities were God family country right that that's that's what I was told my priorities were I could recite those real quick to you but and you could probably recite those real quick to to me today but the question is if I'm not putting my resources where I say my priorities are then those aren't actually my priorities They're just what I say they are. My priorities are actually something completely different. And what you put first in this life matters so much. I was reminded of this a couple years ago. We took our family on a wonderful summer vacation to the beach. And I don't know how many of you have had this experience. But we got in the car. And our goal as parents for that day was to arrive safely. And our kids goal was to arrive in time to get in the ocean that night. That was the goal for the day, to be able to get in the ocean, in the waves that evening. And we were fortunate. We had good traffic. We didn't have any problems with our vehicle. We made it. And we made it in time. We made such good time that the sun was still shining brightly enough that at least people with our skin tone still need sunscreen. And... uh, It was one of those hot days. The weather forecast said there will be a thunderstorm within an hour, uh, in about an hour's time, but you still have time. Uh, There's gonna be sun almost up until that point. So we got there and we unloaded that car as fast as we could and we just threw the the luggage and things down in in the condo. And we began to do that checklist that you have before you go to the beach of get it, you know, make sure all, all the kids have everything they need, get the chairs, get the towels, we get the snacks, get the water bottles, get ready to, to go down to the beach because we wanted to get in the water that evening. And we, we did our very best. We, we got down to the beach and we decided to divide and conquer. Uh, my wife took one of the kids, who a uh, smaller guy, He at that point in his life, he just wanted to get in kind of up to his ankles, and then I took the other two. Uh, at that point in their lives, one was a strong swimmer, the other was getting there but still needed a flotation device, made sure we had that on, and we run out in, into the waves. And When you're a parent with kids at the beach, it's such an amazing time. You make all these wonderful memories But those waves, as wonderful as they are, they also cause anxiety. And I had done everything I could to be prepared. I'd researched online, what do you do if you get caught in a riptide? What do you do if you get caught in a cross current? I taught my children this. I, I, I had thought through all this and we, we were heading out and we tried to make sure that we had everything we needed to go out in, into those waves and I went out and I, I had the older one and, and I, who could swim well and I had the one in the flotation device and we, we were there and then all of a sudden, it was fairly calm waves, here comes this rogue wave. Have you ever had one of those? Now, it probably was barely big enough to surf on, but compared to the waves that had come before it, it was a monster and here it comes at us and I'm looking at my kids and I'm thinking okay how are we going to get through this wave well uh the older one was one of those guys that when a big wave comes he just dives into it head first and goes right through it he he's fine he doesn't try to go over top of it Uh, I took the other one in the flotation device and I lifted her up over top of it and uh as we came down from that wave, I can hear them just cackling, just that joyful laughter. But at that moment, I was horrified because I realized that of all the things I needed to do first before we went, there was a problem. I thought I'd done everything. Snacks, water bottles, towels, chairs. I Even remembered the sunscreen what I had not remembered to do was to tie my drawstring. (laughs) And it's amazing how your life flashes before your eyes in that moment. I was just sure that there was some 13 year old filming and that this was gonna go viral on YouTube, that the headlines would be pastor charged with indecent exposure. I was thinking about which friends do I know who own a business who will give me a job so I can, can support my family. And then my wife was concerned uh, because she looked out and after the wave hit, she saw the kids pop right back up and I didn't pop up. <laughs> Uh, she could see my head but I wasn't coming up out of the water and she thought what what has happened and what happened was I was frantically clinging to the only piece of clothing I had that was no longer on the part of my body it was supposed to be on (laughs) and fortunately before I ran out of air I was able to rectify the the situation but there are some things you need to do first And if you don't do those things first in life, there's disastrous consequences. This is so much so that throughout our lives, whether it comes to our faith or anything else we're doing, we could say that last place is reserved for those who forget to put first things first. Last place is usually for the people who forget what they needed to do first. When I was a teenager, uh, I got... friends with some of my buddies and they were really into cars and they liked to fix up cars and soup up cars and go down to the local drag strip and race the cars. And I knew a little bit enough where I could come over and could help them. They knew a lot about how you fixed up cars. So we worked on this one car and we got ready and we we took it down to the, the drag strip and everybody laughed at us because do you know what we took to the drag strip a Chevy Malibu (laughs) against Camaros against Mustangs we trotted out a Chevy Malibu but there was something about that Chevy Malibu those other people didn't know all the money in that car had been put into the engine not into the exterior and the first race, my buddy's driving, lines up the car against a Mustang. And we just happen to be sit, sitting near the family and friends of the driver of the Mustang. And they are saying all these awful things about the Chevy Malibu. And about the type of person who would drive a Chevy Malibu at a drag strip. And you can imagine the look on their faces when that Chevy Malibu beat that Mustang da- down the line. And I stood up and, and they're, they're sitting there going, how can a Chevy Malibu win? And I stood up and I go, because we put our money in the engine. And then my friends were like, we don't say that at the drag strip. <laughs> you might be able to trash talk at games. That, we, we're, we didn't come to get into a fight. And they they ushered me to a, a different area of the arena. But that Mustang driver hadn't taken care of the first thing he needed, so he lost. That happens in life to us. That's why every time you come, every time you hear me preach, you hear me say, if you're not reading the Bible every day already, be a part of the Bible reading plan. You can find it at the information center. You can find it online at concordunited.org Bible. Read your Bible every day and pray every day. There at concordunited.org Bible. Download the daily devotional. And get it on email or podcast form so it can take you deeper into the scriptures, help you have a focus for your prayer life because first things need to come first. And if we don't get first things first in our spiritual lives, everything else gets out of whack. And in how, in fact, that's what we're preaching about today is the, the first things. We're preaching from Matthew 6. Now, last month, our sermon series was on prayer and we preached a lot from Matthew 6. You may remember that last month we talked about how Matthew 6 is the middle of the sermon on the mount the middle of Jesus's most famous teachings the core the essence of his most famous teachings right here in the middle and Matthew 6 is about two things it's about prayer and generosity and what that should tell us is that prayer and generosity are essential elements of following Jesus Christ They are essential. They're in the middle. Are there other essentials? Yes, there are a few others, but these are essential to the point that they are the very middle of Jesus's core teachings. And so last month, we talked a lot about prayer. This month, we're gonna be going through Matthew 6 and looking at what Jesus says about generosity. So I want to begin this with you. We're picking up with Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So, whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And that's kind of old language. Alms in the New Testament, that refers to to when you give to help others in need. So Jesus is sharing this with us in the middle of his teachings. And what we see when, when he says that is that you can no more be a Christian without giving than you can without praying. It's, it's just like, it. it's, it's just part of it. And I was talking this week with Pastor Mike Stallings. Pastor Mike is actually preaching in our traditional service today on this same passage. And he was talking about his research into it. We were kind of sharing our ideas from the research we'd done. And he said, you know what fascinates me most about this passage is the assumptions Jesus makes. Jesus makes a lot of assumptions and I think there's something important we can learn from those. And then he identified these three assumptions and after talking with him I thought they were so important I wanted to share these assumptions with you that Jesus makes in this passage. Jesus assumes three things. One, you should give. He's assuming generosity is a part of your relationship with God. Two, people will give with impure motives, and three, there will be rewards. These are all things that Jesus is assuming. He's assuming, again, to start with, you should give. That giving is both an act of gratitude and devotion to God, and that it's a way that we bless others. He assumes that you should give uh, to support sharing the good news. In fact, there were people who did that so that he could share the good news. If you look at his disciples, many of them, he, he asked, uh, as they followed him, he said, hey, give your money to the poor and come follow me. He expected you to give to help those who didn't have enough. And the way they were able to do that, the way their ministry was funded is there were a group of rather wealthy women. The Bible calls them women of means. And these women of means supported Jesus uh, as he traveled and his whole group of disciples so that they had the resources they need to travel. Jesus assumed this was all part of it. So he assumed you should give uh, to glorify God and to help others. And Jesus assumed that people would give with impure motives sometimes, not all the time, but he assumed sometimes that would be the case. And he knew how the world works. He knew how people are. You know, we're we're told we're supposed to, to give with pure motives. Sometimes people don't. Sometimes people make massive donations to universities simply to bless students in that region with educational resources. And sometimes people make massive donations to universities so that uh, their child or grandchild who didn't quite have the best GPA can get into that university. And sometimes you will see the news headlines and it'll say, you know, we found out that this kid got into this college because their parent gave $5 million. Isn't this shocking? No, it's not shocking at all. We, we should uh, all just assume that that goes, Jesus wouldn't be shocked. Of course that happens. That, that's how life works. Now, sometimes we put policies in place to try and make that happen less. Jesus understood how people were. Of course that happens. But Jesus says, here's, here's what I want you to know when that happens. Here's what I want you to know when you're tempted to give for impure reasons even in your giving to God even in your giving to bless others there will be rewards there will be rewards and what he's saying is you can choose your reward you want to make a big show out of it some people will still think good of you because of what you gave even if you make a show out of it and that's fine that they think that way that's fine just understand if that's your purpose you forfeit the reward of your father in heaven and you get your reward just from those people. Understand that. Now, here's the great thing when people give from, from impure motives. Uh, because I, could tell, I think all of us could look and say, at some point, we've done something from impure motives. Here, here's the great thing when, when you give from that. Two thirds of the church's mission still takes place. Someone gives to the church from impure motives, it still helps the church share Christ. That's the first part of our mission. It still serves others. That's the second part of our mission. It helps provide for those in this community who are not able to provide for themselves. But the third part of our mission, to grow in faith, it doesn't do that. You forfeit the the personal growth in faith that you would have when you give for impure motives. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying we all do. And it's sad to see that in American Christianity, there's an increase in impure motives. And here's what I want to say. I'm not saying this is what happens here, but I, across our country, uh, there was a survey and they asked how many people, that, that they asked people, they said, okay, do you believe that by giving to God, God will give back to you more monetary resources? In essence, meaning that you are not giving purely to bless others, you are giving as an investment scheme. That you think if I give this, God will give me back more. Therefore, I'm giving so that God will give me back more monetarily. They asked that question five years ago. 37% of American Christians said, yes, I believe that. They asked that question this year. 52% said, yes, I believe that. We call that the prosperity gospel, It's making a pyramid scheme out of the truth of God and it is heretical and it is found nowhere in the New Testament. Now, I want you to know... I do believe that people who pray about and are intentional and plan accordingly to put their resources to things like church, to things like blessing others, I think those are typically also the people who plan well enough to maximize their resources and who often find themselves accumulating wealth because they've had a good plan in place. I believe that happens. I believe God wants us to have a good plan in place. In fact, if you're looking to create a good plan for yourself. We have a class that's starting next week called Saving Grace, and it looks at Christian finances and how we can be faithful with the resources we have. It meets on Wednesday nights. We'd love to have you be a part of it. I believe all of that, but I do not believe that if you give this much to God, you will magically get this much back in in your bank account. I don't think that's found anywhere. I do believe there's a reward. And I believe that reward that God gives us could sometimes come in the the form of resources, but generally it comes in the form of peace and closer relationship. And that's the primary form in which it comes when we give with pure motives. What's what's it mean to give with pure motives? It means we we don't give because uh, somehow we're scared that if we don't, we won't get into heaven or God will punish us or something. Think about the thief on the cross who Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, today you'll be with me in paradise assuming you holler at your lawyer real quick uh, to change your will before you expire here on the cross. He said, that, that guy didn't have the opportunity to do that. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Giving does not have to be an obligation it's an expression of your deep love, trust, and gratitude for God. That's ultimately, purely where it comes from. To the point that uh, we, we could say that we don't give because otherwise God would condemn us. That's not, that's not why we do it. We give because God befriended us. There's a big difference between giving out of fear that you'll be condemned and giving because you've met a God who befriended you. You met a God who saw your confusion, who saw your pain, who saw your anger, who saw your frustration, who saw your temptation, who saw your weakness, who saw your sin, who saw your brokenness, who saw all your mess and said, I still love that person. I still love her. I still love him. You worship a God who had a million reasons to give up on you. A million. And decided that not a single one of them was good enough. Not a single one of them was good enough to prevent him from giving his life for you rather than giving up on you. That's the gratitude. That's imagine going to court and you've got literally a million charges against you. And they say, This person is guilty. In fact, we've acknowledged that, they acknowledge that they're guilty of these million charges. And surely with a million charges against you, you'll never see the light of day again. And imagine the judge saying, not one of these is good enough. Of these million, not one of these and not all of these altogether is good enough for us to give up on this person and send them away. That's the God we worship, that's the God we serve, and that's why we give. And let me tell you what love does when you give because you love the God who loves you like that. Love does not ask, how little can I get away with? Love asks, what more can I do? Love does not ask, how little can I get away with? Love asks, What more can I do? And so when we talk about generosity, what we find in Jesus' teachings, if we want our treasure to be where our heart is, what we find is that first, we have to check our hearts. First, before we do anything else, before we think about how much we'll give or where we'll give, first, you check your heart so that you don't forfeit the reward. And what I want to invite you to do today is first check your heart and then come to the Lord's table. You see, this table is one of God's extravagant gifts to us. At this table, what, what we find is that Jesus wanted to give us a gift so that we would know he would be with us even when we doubted it. He, he gave the first supper, uh, well, the, the first last supper right? How's that for an oxymoron? He, he gave the first last supper on the night before he was to be crucified because he knew his disciples would doubt. He knew once he was physically gone that they would think he was actually gone. And he said, I, I want you every time you do this to remember I'm with you. And I want this bread to be my body and this wine to be my blood so I can be in a sense physically present with you so that you'll know that just as you experience my physical presence, my spiritual presence is always here in that same degree and in that same power. He gave this gift to us. And it's been the tradition of the church that before we come and receive this gift, the first thing that Christians have done throughout the centuries is they pray. And we pray a prayer that begins with confession of saying, God, this is, I don't deserve it. I have a million charges against me. I don't deserve it, but I come because you decided none of those were good enough. None of those were greater than your grace. None of those should prevent me from coming. That's the first thing we do. Then we pray that the Holy Spirit will... uh, make this bread and this wine into the body and blood of christ that the holy spirit in essence will allow uh, this bread and this juice to serve as reminders and symbols for us that christ really is present with us that he's as present with us here as he was on that mountain he preached on long ago with those people to remind us and drill that reality into our souls And then finally, as we've prepared to approach the table, uh, it's been uh, tradition uh, within many branches of Christianity that we pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, that we seek to uh, make our prayer His prayer uh, because we're told that we want His mind to be our mind, uh, that He might guide us in how we live and in how we love. So we're going to do all that today as we come forward. I I pray that as we pray, you will check your heart about why why am I coming? Why, why do I do what I do? And I pray that if there are impure motives in your heart, there's probably impure motives in all our hearts. Pray we turn that over to God and we'd say, okay, God, okay, I want to give this to you so I won't forfeit my reward. And then that you'll come and receive. And as we pray, I'm going to lead us through the first bits of that prayer and then we're gonna get to the Lord's Prayer. And when we do, the words will be on the screen. And I want to invite you to pray aloud with me in that part of the service. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you. And before we come to your table, we pause to check our hearts. We pause to make sure that we are coming for you, that we are not walking down this aisle so that others will see us or think well of us, because we made our way to to church this morning, but we are coming because we want to meet you and you have promised to meet us here. Forgive us for all the times we have done the right thing for the wrong reason and forgive us for the times we've done the wrong thing for the wrong reason. Forgive us for the times we have been apathetic towards you. We have ignored you and gone our own way because it seemed easier in the moment forgive us for the times we have in full rebellion turned from you and intentionally walked away draw us back lord as we gather and give thanks for that evening when you took bread and said this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me And when you took wine and said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on this bread and this fruit of the vine, that it might be for us, the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world, the body of Christ. Your body redeemed by your blood. Until we praise you in your eternal kingdom, let our mind become more and more your mind. Let our feet go more and more where your feet would go. Let our hands serve more and more as your hands would serve. And let our prayer be more and more your prayer. As we pray the prayer you taught your first disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Concord United Methodist Church. This podcast is a ministry of Concord United, and we would love to hear from you. To contact us, please send an email to podcasts at concordunited.org with sermons in the subject line. For more information about Concord United, including worship times, service opportunities, mission efforts, and classes, please visit our website at concordunited.org.